Have you read A Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold? Here's your chance to get a taste of it. I'm Britta Meyerly with Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness, and this is Your Wild Place. If you aren't familiar with Aldo Leopold, here's a quick rundown. He was born in 1887. He was instrumental in developing the wilderness management proposal of what later became the U.S.'s first official wilderness area in 1924. That's 40 years before the Wilderness Act. He pioneered the idea of a land ethic. He said, when we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. In 1948, he died of a heart attack but not before finding out that a Sand County Almanac would be published. Now, let's meet your narrator for today. Hello, my name is Katie. I'm a student at WSU. I'm studying wildlife ecology and conservation. And today I'm going to be reading an excerpt from a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. April, come high water. The same logic that causes big rivers always to flow past big cities causes cheap farms sometimes to be marooned by spring floods. Ours is a cheap farm, and sometimes when we visit it in April, we get marooned. Not intentionally, of course, but one can, to a degree, guess from weather reports when the snows up north will melt, and one can estimate how many days it takes for the flood to run the gauntlet of upriver cities. Thus, Come Sunday evening, one must go back to town and work, but one can't. How sweetly the spreading waters murmur condolence from the wreckage they have inflicted on Monday morning dates. How deep and chesty the honkings of the geese as they cruise over cornfield after cornfield, each in process of becoming a lake. Every hundred yards, some new goose flails the air as he struggles to lead the echelon in its morning survey of this new and watery world. The enthusiasm of geese for high water is a subtle thing and might be overlooked by those unfamiliar with goose gossip, but the enthusiasm of carp is obvious and unmistakable. No sooner has the rising flood wetted the grass roots than here they come, rooting and wallowing with the prodigious zest of pigs turned out to pasture, flashing red tails and yellow bellies, cruising the wagon tracks and cow paths and shaking the reeds and bushes in their haste to explore what of them is an expanding universe. Unlike the geese and the carp, the terrestrial birds and mammals accept high water with philosophical detachment. A cardinal atop a river birch whistles loudly his claim to a territory that before the geese cannot be seen to exist. A ruffed grouse drums from the flooded woods. He must be perched on the high end of the highest drumming log. Meadow mice paddle ridgeward with the calm assurance of miniature muskrats. From the orchard bounds a deer, evicted from his usual daytime bed in the willow thickets. Everywhere are rabbits, calmly accepting quarters on our hill, which serves, in Noah's absence, for an ark. The spring flood brings more than high adventure. It brings likewise an unpredictable miscellany of floatable objects pilfered from upriver farms. An old board stranded on our meadow has, to us, twice the value of the same piece new from the lumber yard. Each old board has its own individual history, 
always unknown, but always to some degree guessable from the kind of wood, its dimensions, its nails, screws, or paint, its finish or the lack of it, its wear or decay. One can even guess, from the abrasion of its edges and ends on sandbars, how many floods have carried it in years past. Our lumber pile, recruited entirely from the river, is thus not only a collection of personalities, but an anthology of human striving in upriver farms and forests. The autobiography of an old board is a kind of literature not yet taught on campuses, but any riverbank farm is a library where he who hammers or saws may read at will. Come high water, there is always an accession of new books. There are degrees and kinds of solitude. An island in a lake has one kind, but lakes have boats, and there is always the chance that one might land to pay you a visit. A peak in the clouds has another kind, but most peaks have trails, and trails have tourists. I know of no solitude so secure as one guarded by a spring flood, nor do the geese, who have seen more kinds and degrees of aloneness than I have. So we sit on our hill beside a new-blown pask and watch the geese go by. I see our road dipping gently in the waters, and I conclude, with inner glee but exterior detachment, that the question of traffic, in or out, is for this day at least debatable only among carp. This next section may have you a bit confused if you don't know what draba is. Draba is a large genus of tiny flowering plants. They aren't native to the U.S. and are considered noxious weeds in some states. Even so, Mr. Leopold had a soft spot for them. Draba. Within a few weeks now, Draba, the smallest flower that blows, will sprinkle every sandy place with small blooms. He who hopes for spring with upturned eye never sees so small thing as Draba. He who despairs of spring with downcast eye steps on it unknowingly. He who searches for spring with his knees in the mud finds it in abundance. Draba asks and gets, but scant allowance of warmth and comfort. It subsists on the leavings of unwanted time and space. Botany books give it two or three lines, but never a plate or portrait. Sand too poor and sun too weak for bigger, better blooms are good enough for Draba. After all, it is no spring flower, but only a postscript to a hope. Draba plucks no heartstrings. Its perfume, if there is any, is lost in the gusty winds. Its color is plain white. Its leaves wear a sensible woolly coat. Nothing eats it. It's too small. No poets sing of it. Some botanists once gave it a Latin name and then forgot it. Altogether, it is of no importance. Just a small creature that does a small job quickly and well. Skydance. I owned my farm for two years before learning that the skydance is to be seen over my woods every evening in April and May. Since we discovered it, my family and I have been reluctant to miss even a single performance. The show begins on the first warm evening in April at exactly 6.50 p.m. The curtain goes up one minute later each day until 1 June, when the time is 7.50. This sliding scale is dictated by vanity, the dancer demanding a romantic light intensity of exactly .05 foot candles. Do not be late and sit quietly. 
lest he fly away in a huff. The stage props, like the opening hour, reflect the temperamental demands of the performer. The stage must be an open amphitheater in woods or brush, and in its center there must be a mossy spot, a streak of sterile sand, a bare outcrop of rock, or a bare roadway. Why the male woodcock should be such a stickler for a bare dance floor puzzled me at first, but now I think it's a matter of legs. The woodcock's legs are short, and his struttings cannot be executed to his advantage in dense grass or weeds, nor could his lady see them there. I have more woodcocks than most farmers because I have more mossy sand, too poor to support grass. Knowing the place and the hour, you seat yourself under a bush to the east of the dance floor and wait, watching against the sunset for the woodcock's arrival. He flies in low from some neighboring thicket, alights on the bare moss, and at once begins the overture. A series of queer throaty paints spaced about two seconds apart and sounding much like the summer call of a nighthawk. Suddenly, the painting ceases and the bird flutters skyward in a series of wide spirals, emitting a musical twitter. Up and up he goes, the spiral steeper and smaller, the twittering louder and louder, until the performer is only a speck in the sky. Then, without warning, he tumbles like a crippled plane, giving voice in a soft liquid warble that a March bluebird might envy. At a few feet from the ground, he levels off and returns to his painting ground, usually to the exact spot where the performance began, and there resumes his painting. It is soon too dark to see the bird on the ground, but you can see his flights against the sky for an hour, which is the usual duration of the show. On moonlight nights, however, it may continue at intervals as long as the moon continues to shine. At daybreak, the whole show is repeated. In early April, the final curtain falls at 5.15 a.m. The time advances two minutes a day until June when the performance closes for the year at 3.15. Why the disparity and sliding scale? Alas, I fear that even romance tires for it takes only a fifth as much light to stop the sky dance at dawn as suffices to start it at sunset. It is fortunate, perhaps, that no matter how intently one studies the hundred little dramas of the woods and meadows, one can never learn all of the salient facts about any one of them. What I do not yet know about the sky dance is where is the lady, and just what part, if any, does she play. I often see two woodcocks on a painting ground, and two sometimes fly together, but they never paint together. Is the second bird the hen or a rival male? Another unknown. Is the twitter vocal or is it mechanical? My friend Bill Feeney once clapped a net over a painting bird and removed his outer primary wing feathers. Thereafter, the bird painted and warbled, but twittered no more. But one such experiment is hardly conclusive. Another unknown. Up to what stage of nesting does the male continue the sky dance? My daughter once saw a bird painting within 20 yards of a nest containing hatched eggshells. But was this his lady's nest? Or is this secretive fellow possibly bigamous without our ever having found out? These, and many other questions, remain mysteries of the deepening dusk. The drama of the sky dance is enacted nightly on the hundreds of farms, the owners of which sigh for entertainment, 
but harbor the illusion that it is to be sought in theaters. They live on the land, but not by the land. The woodcock is the living refutation of the theory that the utility of a game bird is to serve as a target or to pose gracefully on a slice of toast. No one would rather hunt woodcock in October than I, but since learning of the sky dance, I find myself calling one or two birds enough. I must be sure that come April, there be no dearth of dancers in the sunset sky. Thanks for listening to Your Wild Place, presented by Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit our website, scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode featured Katie Rayborn-Dale reading selections from Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. The episode was sponsored by Blue Creek Press of Heron, Montana. If you want to learn more about Aldo Leopold, or find some family activities to do inspired by a Sand County Almanac, visit the Aldo Leopold Foundation's website, aldoleopold.org. Your Wild Place is edited by Ray Brown. Theme music by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. Our next episode will reflect on how spending 100 days in solitude at a remote fire lookout prepared Amy Pearson for staying at home during the coronavirus pandemic. Subscribe to Your Wild Place wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode.